Heavenly Father, help us to prepare our hearts and our minds to receive your word. Amen. Today's reading comes from the book of John, the 16th chapter, beginning in verse 25. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. And Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you that you may, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. The blessed word of God. As you're being seated, let me now officially welcome you if you're joining us on Facebook Live or YouTube. I know that just went live maybe 10 minutes ago, and so we are glad to have you with us this morning, uh, and uh, glad that you, thank you, Nathan, uh, glad that you are part of our time together. How many of you love Christmas? Raise your hand. Uh, all right, so so uh, several of you love Christmas. I'm not saying that if you didn't raise your hand, you hate it. But there are some people who are, who are fanatic, Christmas fanatics, and I'm married to one of them. Uh, uh, she loves Christmas, and we have one on our staff, David Grindstaff. I don't know if he's sitting in this service or not, just looking. Oh, he's in the very back. How many days to Christmas, David? Less than 200. Uh, he has a countdown on his phone. He always knows. Occasionally, we walk down the hall. There's Christmas music coming out of his office. He loves Christmas. And so Christmas, I do too. I enjoy it. Uh, we, we begin decorating. Uh, uh, the kids despise all the decoration that uh, is required. And, and uh, we, you know, have tote after tote of things that uh, come out and go up and all of that sort of thing. 
thing. The reason I bring up Christmas in June is that in order to get this passage we're going to get today, we have to go to, uh, in our minds, December 25th. And we have to, in theology, look at what is less preached about, I would say, uh, the incarnation, Jesus becoming flesh, Jesus becoming a human being. You see, on April 11th, we began this sermon series uh, on the longest week. We put all of these clocks up here. People ask about that. Just to give the intimation, the idea of the clock ticking down to Jesus' trial and Jesus' crucifixion and ultimately his resurrection. And we have, since April 11th, uh, walked through chapters 13, 14, 15, and now 16 of John. And we have looked at this remarkably long week in Jesus' life, his triumphal entry, and then uh, we get now to his final words. These are it. These, this is the last paragraph. This is the last bit of conversation before Jesus will pray. And after he prays, they will arrest him and he will go through what is called the passion, his suffering. And so we look now then and lean in a little closer because the words are the last ones, just like you have done perhaps when a loved one is dying. You've leaned in at those final moments to hear those final words. We will do the same. And when we do, we find a remarkable nugget in verse 28, it seems to be a tacit summary statement, but it is not. It is uh, pregnant with theological significance. Verse 28, Jesus says in the middle of his final words, I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. Before Jesus came into the world, I don't know if it has ever occurred to you that he did so uh, not having a human body. Jesus, pre-incarnation, was not uh, a man. There are those pre-incarnate appearances that may register with you, the most notable being the fiery furnace when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are there. And there's a fourth man that I am convinced, and I think most scholars are, is Jesus. But he did not maintain that. He took on that bodily form for that moment Prior to his birth uh, in Bethlehem, Jesus was not human. He was a spirit. He did not have human flesh. That's what the word incarnation means, in the flesh. And when he ascends into heaven, he makes an important decision, which is to keep that flesh 
I think that's up for grabs. I think he could have not, but he decides to remain human. He will go back into the sinless presence of heaven, into the adoration of millions of angels, to the place where he only is glorified, and and he, in my understanding, will bear scars of his humanity Scars in his wrists, scars in his side, scars in his legs. Any illustration of this fails. Uh, I don't want you to accuse me of Trinitarian heresy, but I also want you to get it. Imagine for a moment a, a boy who graduates high school at the age of 18 His country is at war, and so he leaves. He leaves to go fight for his country. He goes to basic training, to boot camp, and then he uh, is put on the front lines. There he sees things he's never seen before. There he experiences things he's never before experienced. He smells the smell of death. He literally holds a comrade who lies fallen and in the process of that is injured and loses loses part of his leg. The war ends, the boy comes home, and he boards the same train uh, to his small town that he left on. And when he rounds the bend, nothing has changed in his town Uh, every building is where it was when he left, and he sees the familiar face of mom and dad and grandma and grandpa and a couple of siblings as they wait for him. He gets off the train, and when he does, they notice he walks with a limp. They're... Their boy has come home a man. He left an 18-year-old boy. He's coming home a 20-year-old man. Now, my point is not at all that Jesus left heaven a boy and came home a man. My point is this. Jesus left heaven without a body and came back with one. And this body, while you may adore yours or you may bemoan yours if you are sick or if its weight is not what you would prefer, whatever it may be, this body is not all it's cracked up to be. Amen? I mean, just ask older people in the room. They'll tell you. The perks of free coffees and, uh, uh, and, and less expensive things when you get older do not counteract all of the work it takes to do life when you get older. And Jesus entered heaven with scars put there by you and me. And I wonder when that happened, did the angels kind of step back in silence Was it quiet? Was was there such reverence for such sacrifice? 
when he returned. That, my friends, is the incarnation. That's Christmas. He, according to the writer of Hebrews, was tempted in every way like you are, yet without sin. He put on our shoes and walked around in them. And as a result of that, what the point he's making, his last point, is that we can know the Father like never before. But not only that, God will know his Son like never before. He will relate to him in heaven with skin on. Schlatter expands on it like this. Through the entrance into the world, Jesus establishes fellowship with, with men. Through his departure from it, he consummates his fellowship with God. Therein, his greatness consists that on both sides, he perfects fellowship. It gives him his royal power. In other words, when the 18-year-old boy gets home and he's a 20-year-old man, his conversations between him and his dad will be quite a bit different than they were before they left. So what does that mean for you and me? And what did it mean for those 11 disciples? Because Jesus left heaven, came here, and has returned to the Father, there are two implications that you need to know. One, God the Father loves us as friends. God the Father loves us as friends. Jesus says, I've been speaking in figures of speech, and he has, hasn't he? He's talking about a fruit and a vine. He, he's talked about these things that are more metaphorical. They're abstract. He says, the hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech. If you could push fast forward past the crucifixion, you find Jesus on the Emmaus Road opening up the, the Old Testament and saying, okay, this is me, this is me, uh, this is who I am. He ultimately did that. But he says, in that day, we would go past that conversation. I think he means post-ascension when he is in heaven. And that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. Why? For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world. I'm leaving the world. I'm going back to the Father. You will ask or pray in my name, but he's saying that I, I will not have to go and take your prayer and carry it to the Father. I won't have to do that. Why? And he uses two words that are important and drive home the meaning. One is the, an additional pronoun, unnecessary, the Father himself. That's the additional pronoun. The Father himself loves you. He could easily have said the Father loves you, but when you add himself, it gives emphasis. He says to them, the Father himself, God, my Father, my Father himself loves you, and then it's the word love. You see, there are four words uh, in Greek, in ancient Greek, for love, and 
And Jesus chooses one here that is uh, intentional. Of course, we know all his words were, but this is the word philia. Um, If you uh, go to Philadelphia, uh, you will see signs that call it the city of what? Brotherly love. Uh, Based on the word philia in Greek, um, philia is friendship love. C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, The Four Loves, to the ancients, friendship seemed the happiest and most fully human of all loves. To be friends, uh, to have good friends, uh, to the ancients seemed to be the ultimate love. Well, what marks a good friendship? uh, What marks good friendship is you share things in common. Uh, There are common interests, and uh, you do life around some common interests. That's what makes uh, for good friends. If uh, I'll just give you a test for uh, all of you who know. If you're going to be friends with Greg Daniels, you should do what? Ride a bike. Like everybody in the room uh, uh, who knows Greg, just you should ride a bike, right? Because Greg rides bikes. It's, it's huge in his life. Uh, you should ride a bike if you're going to be friends with Greg Daniels. And so what will happen is if you're on a bike, and Greg is a gracious guy, he's amazing on a bike. I've ridden with him multiple times. He, he just hangs back. He'll, he'll, he'll talk right through every bit of it. And friendship flourishes on a bike. All right, so let's take that then, and if all of a sudden we get to be the friends of God, if God loves us with the filial love, then what is our common interest? Let me rephrase the question. That's a trick question. Who is our common interest? Jesus. You see, the father loves his boy. The father loves his son. And when you also, by faith, love his son, the father says, we're what? We're friends. You're friends with the creator of the universe. You get to hang out with God. That's the point. You are friends with the one who hung the moon and the stars. As a friend with God, we are both preoccupied with his son, with Jesus. As a matter of fact, just uh, however many minutes earlier, John 15 records uh, Jesus saying, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Jesus, in his final words to his disciples before he will pray to his Father, looks at them and says, there's going to be this intermediate time. I think parenthetically is what he's saying where he has said this before, I won't be with you, but because of me and because you love me, you have a friend in heaven, the Father. He is your friend. That's good news, isn't it? You say, what does that mean and what does it look like? Yesterday, I was communicating with someone who was trying to order some cinnamon rolls from Wendy and before her son leaves to go to military. And I said, oh, that must be so hard. 
And she said, the hardest thing I've ever done. And then she said these words, but he was God's son long before he was mine, and he'll be God's son long after he's mine. And God is a much better father than I am a mother. Wow, that's a good word, isn't it? And I replied, in anticipation of my own son going to college, thank you. What a good word. That's what Jesus is saying. God is your father. The condition is verse 27. Because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. You see, there's another word for love uh, in the Bible. It's agape. Agape love is described as that sacrificial, selfless, giving love, often from a superior to an inferior, and it uh, is, is not dependent on the person's response. It's not friendship love. It's not necessarily reciprocated. It's initiated, you might think. And so there is a place where that word for love shows up that all of you know. It's the most famous verse in the Bible. John 3, what? 16, for God so what? That's the word agape, loved. There is a love of God for the world. If you are sitting in here this morning and you do not yet know Christ, there is a love of God for the world. This week, I, I was privileged to call a gentleman who had seen a doctor in our church, and uh, I don't know if the doctor led him to Christ or what happened, but he came to Christ. And so I, I called him because he's interested in growing in his walk with the Lord. And when I did, I introduced myself. I've never met him before. I introduced myself, told him who I was, and uh, James and Jenny Tarpley are going to pick him up. He'll be at the 5 p.m. service today. We have a new believers group starting as soon as that service is over, and he'll be right in the middle of it. And when I was talking to him about it, he said to me, yes, a month ago tomorrow, I became a follower of Jesus Christ. Everything changes, doesn't it? All right, so God has an agape love for him, but now there is a, a friendship love that the Father wants to develop between him and that 30-year-old man. So because Jesus left heaven, came here, and is returned to the Father, uh, we get to be friends with the Father. But secondly, because Jesus left heaven, came here, and returned to the Father. The second implication and final one is that he, Jesus, has overcome the world. He, he's won. His disciples said, ah, oh, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech now we know that you know all things and do not need to, anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Did those disciples believe that? Yes, they did. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered each to his own home, and you will leave me alone, yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. Well, the disciples uh, think they figured it all out, don't they? They speak with such confidence. Do they have faith? Yes, they left their nets. They followed him. They left the tax collector's booth, and they followed him. Do they have faith? Yes. Do they love him? Yes. Uh, but they're about to be tested like they have never been tested before. And Jesus calls that out, and their faith 
and their love uh, is, is going to falter on this test. And Jesus tells them so. He says, Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home. For all their faith and love, they would abandon Jesus in his hour of greatest need. Have you ever done that? Have you ever had great intentions with poor outcome and then thought, why? I never planned, and you fill in the blank, but you did anyway. Has it ever caused you to question your faith? To wonder how, how you could truly believe and truly love Jesus and there's a blank. If so, you're in good company. So did Peter, Thaddeus, and Matthew, and James, John. Zechariah prophesied this in chapter 13, verse 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And when Jesus was struck, the sheep scattered. Jesus knew that sheep need a shepherd. You would expect his next words after you will leave me alone to be, and I will leave you alone, right? You would expect that, but, but they're not his words at all. I received this text this week from a life group leader here at Grace. does an amazing job with this group. This is what he wrote. I woke up this morning at 4.30 thinking about my sins and how awful I've been. I just started praying and asking for forgiveness again. I got up and read chapter 6 of Gentle and Lowly. I, I will never cast out. God speaks, he wrote. I cried all the way through it. Thanks for letting us know about the book. My life group will get a dose. Don't you love how Jesus met his, uh, his brother and the son of his father, that life group leader reminded of his awful sin upon waking? Don't you love how uh, that book was right there and Jesus interjected in that moment and said these words, I will never cast out. Isn't that the faithfulness of our God, church? Has he ever met you like that? Have you ever had a moment? Have you ever had a day? Have you ever had a season where you look back on it and your faithfulness seems so small, but his faithfulness seems so big? Have you ever been there, church? I have. Some of you are just kind of like, mm, maybe. If we're honest, we've lived there. Jesus never forgot that those 11 were sheep. God does not forget our frame. Psalm 103, verses 13 and 14. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. 
for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that God knows us as we are? I've quoted um, the smaller piece of this quote. I'll include the larger in J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God, a remarkable treatise on God. He says, what matters supremely, therefore, is not in the last analysis the fact that I know God, but the larger fact which underlies it, the fact that he knows me. I am graven on the palms of his hands. I am never out of his mind. All my knowledge of him depends on his sustained initiative in knowing me. I know him because he first knew me and continues to know me. He knows me as a friend, one who loves me, and there is no moment when his eyes off me or his attention detracted, distracted from me, and no moment, therefore, when his care falters. This is momentous knowledge. There is unspeakable comfort, the sort of comfort that energizes, be it said, not enervates, in knowing that God is constantly taking knowledge of me in love and watching over me for my good. There is tremendous relief in knowing that his love to me is utterly realistic, based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me so that no discovery now can disillusion him about me in the way I am so often disillusioned about myself and quench his determination to bless me. There is certainly great cause for humility in the thought that he sees all the twisted things about me that my fellow humans do not see, and I am glad. And that he sees more corruption in me than that which I see in myself, which in conscience is enough. There is, however, equally great incentive to worship and love God in the thought that, for some unfathomable reason, he wants me as a friend and desires to be my friend and has given his son to die for me in order to realize this purpose. We cannot work these thoughts out here, he writes, but merely to mention them is enough to show how much it means to know not merely that we know God, but that he knows us. So this God who knows us now through his son ascended, who is fully human, through his son overcomes the world. To overcome is what the word sounds like. It means to subdue, to conquer, to prevail. It's the word victory. You see, Jesus sets up a dichotomy here in verse 33. He says, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. And then there's another in phrase, in the world. In me, in the world. You will either live your life in Jesus or in the world. Uh, there is no straddling the fence. 
There is no possibility of being in him on Sunday and in the world on Tuesday. You're either in him or you're in the world. You see, this little preposition in packs great punch. And I think it's one of those things, as the Scottish pastor said, that is better felt than tell, uh, perhaps better illustrated than, than it is explained. And so let me see if I can illustrate what it means to be in him versus being in the world and how victory comes about as a result of that. So last year, Zach Triner won a Super Bowl. Uh, so let's do a little test here. How many people have ever heard of Zach Triner? Raise your hand in the room. All right, did anybody raise their hand? No one. No one's heard of Zach Triner. Well, who is Zach Triner? He won a Super Bowl. Why haven't you heard of him? You pathetic fans, right? Are there any Tampa Bay fans in the room? One. The guy with the uh, uh, the Florida shirt on. That's fitting. All right, so uh, the Tampa Bay fan still doesn't know who Zach Triner is, I imagine. Uh, so we give you low marks on fandom. All right, so, so uh, Zach Triner is the long snapper for Tampa Bay. He hikes the ball. Or sometimes he holds it for the kicker. Zach Triner won a Super Bowl last year and three years before that attended Assumption University. So let's do a little test there. How many of you have heard of Assumption University? Raise your hand. One person. All right. So we're in about as unknown as you can be, right? Your name is Zach Triner, you win a Super Bowl, and you attended Assumption University three months prior to winning the Super Bowl. So how is it that unknown Zach Triner is victorious in a Super Bowl, having graduated from Assumption University, and, and how is it? Uh, two words, one person, Tom Brady. Right? Tom uh, our Tampa Bay guys grinning ear to ear. Tom Brady. All right, so Tom Brady leaves the Patriots, uh, goes to Florida, and it just takes one year for uh, Tom Brady to win his seventh Super Bowl uh, at, uh, in Tampa Bay. You might say the only reason Zach Triner, uh, no no disrespect to him, wears a Super Bowl ring is because he was, in a word, in Tom Brady. That's why he won. The reason that you will be victorious over your fear, your sin, your failing marriage, your concerns over retirement and what that even means your loss that you feel over your miscarriage, the unfaithfulness of your spouse, the loss of job is because you are in Christ who has already won. And he said this before the resurrection. He knew he would go to the cross he knew he would die, and he also knew that he would rise from the dead. 
And in him, you have victory. Uh, your circumstances may not line up as you wish. It may not be the exact outcome you anticipate. But he is one. When I was in grad school in South Car at the University of South Carolina, I attended a wonderful church. Dr. Dick Lincoln was our pastor. And Dr. Lincoln told the story, I've shared it before, of uh, how much he loved Hardy Boys books. Uh, any of you read those? Loved them. When I was a kid, Nancy Drew, the, 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 the girl counterpart, right? These mysteries. In every Hardy Boy book, in every Nancy Drew story, uh, there is uh, suspicion, there uh, is uh, of some character who ought to be better than he or she is, and then the suspense builds around some uh, thing, and the Hardy Boys have got to go solve it. They go and, and follow in their dad's footsteps and do their own kind of sleuthing work and figure things out, but inevitably they get in a bind and you wonder if things are going to work out. Dr. Lincoln said um, that he would go to bed having uh, begun a Hardy Boy book and only to discover that, that uh, he couldn't go to sleep because they were in trouble. And how in the world could he go to sleep and leave them in trouble? He says, so his mom would call up and tell him lights out. And, uh, you know, this was before cell phones, and he had a little flashlight. And he said, I would uh, then take my flashlight, shine it on the page. And he said, then mom somehow knew that I still was not asleep. He said, so she would say, son, I said lights out. And he said, I'd try one more time uh, to her chagrin. And finally, if I heard the footsteps start to come up, he said, I did one thing. I turned to the very back of the book. I'd read the very last page, and the Hardy Boys were safe at home, and I could go to sleep. <laughs> well, I'm here to tell you, church, this morning, I've read the, the, the end of the book, and we win. We, the church, are victorious. Amen. Jesus has overcome the very worst. He has overcome sin. He is over. He's got the keys to death, hell, and the grave. He, the very worst, he's overcome. So everything less than that, Paul wrote, if, if God would give you Jesus, which is everything you need for the worst problems that you face, will he not also with Jesus freely give you what? All things. Amen. So if he's overcome, we we've just go to the back of the book. We win. Jesus reigns. He is reigning today. Nothing that has happened in the last year. No pandemic uh, just edged him off the throne, did it? No, he reigned through it. The unrest, he reigned through it. The difficulties, he reigned through it. And he wants to reign in your personal lives. He has overcome the world. Why? Because he was there, came here, and went back. And he's coming back. Amen? What a Savior, Lord. How good you are. How awesome it is to know you. How your last words to these 11 were words of victory. And you were staring down Pilate. Caiaphas, 
an angry mob, a cat of nine tails that whipped around your back, a crown of thorns, a public humiliation of nakedness, a spear in your side, and you overcame. And you spoke of it as if you had already done it. And by that, we're, we're your friends and friends with the Father. We have direct access to the one who loved us so. To send Jesus so that we could know him, but more so that we would be known by him. Thank you, Jesus. And all God's people say,